hears my voice in person. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. This is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about existence is what leads to the news. And if you don't like also describe that, then like nothing ever has any context. And this week we're here with Molly Crabapple, where we talk about everything looks alien to me. So I think all sorts of everyday things are very interesting. In the, is this the Wall Street area? Yeah, the financial district. For this podcast, I've been to Brooklyn a lot. I've been to Midtown a couple of times. This is my first financial district to visit an artist. No one lives here, and that's why you can kind of get cheap places. How did you find this space? Fred, Fred, actually, we were living in Bushwick, and the um, economy had just crashed in 2008, and Fred very wisely was like, ah, this is that one brief moment when we might possibly be able to afford to move to Manhattan and not have to um, take a bus every single weekend um, because they had cut off the L train. And I was like, wow, Manhattan. And he, he, this is all his doing. I had nothing to do with it. Oh, good job, Fred. It's good to be able to detect when there's a crash. Yeah, I don't think, like, my Twitter pays enough attention to financial information that I'd even notice. I just, I, a couple I, months later, I'd be like, hey, have you sold anything in? <laughs> I was very aware of it because it crashed when I was working at the box. So when I was literally surrounded by the crashers of the economy. They were like, look at what we did today. Aha! Oh, wait, we can't ostentatiously flaunt our failure here. Two, <laughs> two weeks of austerity. Let's start at the beginning then. So, you're born. In Farakaway, in Queens. I'm born, I start drawing when I'm four years old. I'm a total brat who can't make the stuff that's on the paper look like the stuff that's in my head. And so I get so angry that I would lay on the floor and cry and pound my little brat fists because I was so frustrated with my failure. And then slowly I got better. Okay, everybody draws when they're very small, but there's a thing that they say that like your critical faculties grow at a certain rate and your ability to draw grows at a certain rate. (laughs) It's much slower. Part of being an, an artist is like that you think you're really good just long enough that your critical faculties don't catch up and then they catch up for a second and then you have the horrible period and then your your actual talent increases but it sounds like you had a really steep criticality curve oh god yeah no i immediately knew that i sucked and as far as i'm concerned i sucked until i was about 26 um, it looks like a four-year-old drew this this is <laughs> I, I, tell you, I, I teach art to kids And I have quite a few kids that suck, and they're like, I'm the best. Well, that's why they're going to stay sucking forever, because they think that they're the best, and so they won't do any damn thing to improve themselves. Yeah. They're like, stop drawing characters with hands behind their backs or hands (laughs) in their pockets. Oh, God. Oh, God. The last recourse of a scoundrel. So did you hire a live model when you were four? How'd How'd you get over the hump? So my mom is an artist, and my mom would... I'd like show her a picture I did and I'd be like, oh, you know, cry, I hate. And she'd be like, the reason this is bad is because of how you drew the nose. You drew the nose like it was a seven that was upside down. And that's not how a nose is. She'd be like, look, there's nostrils, it has holes in the end, you know, it's a three-dimensional object. Here's how you draw a nose. And I think that my mom giving that sort of advice was what got me over the hump. 
That's nice. I mean, on the other hand, she might have been the one who gave you the neurosis in the first place. No, no, no. I gave it. I gave it to myself. She was not critical. I just merely saw my work, and then I saw the really cool art books that were all around, and I saw like Beardsley and To Lose the Track and all of that cool shit, and then I saw like my own fucking scrawlings, and I was like, the gulf between these yawns so great. But it was amazing that you were able to take in a Toulouse-Lautrec at that age as a drawing. I think it took me years to even realize that the art that I was looking at in a picture hadn't gone through some special machine process. I mean, in some cases it had, but a lot that translated it from what, uh, like, a pen drawing to magic. You know, like, I was probably about 11 before I realized that a comic book drawing is just a drawing with pen and then marker (laughs) (laughs) I think because my mom's an illustrator and she had her studio like in the house I could literally like see my mom filling up an airbrush and putting on a mask and like spraying fine mists of color onto things and then making the spheres really round and making the eyes really shiny like I saw that that process happen what kind of stuff did she do she did packaging for children's toys she draws actually a lot like me if I was kind of a nicer person and I did sort of more cheerful subjects super super talented we have kind of all of the same strengths and weaknesses like we're both really bad at perspective but we're really good at like beautiful girls and curly lines yeah you don't really need perspective if you've got pretty girls I've always thought (laughs) you're like ah ah shallow background you have the lovely girl standing in the front of it who cares what's behind her? Yeah, fuck that. Fuck that shit. <laughs> sort of vague pattern. She did package designed for toys. I just kind of want to know what toys now. Ca- uh, Cabbage Patch Kids, Holly Hobby. Oh, all right. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I can totally see Holly Hobby. Like, there's a sort of trailing scarfs and, like, flyaway hair. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Lots of licensed stuff. She was also always, like, being suckered by that thing that artists are always being suckered with which is people coming to her and saying i've got this great idea for a children's book can you illustrate my children's book for free and then i'm gonna take it to a publisher and we're gonna all make a million dollars what do you think of like de buffet who draws like a kindergartner but people are like that's so charming do we hate him um i don't care i feel like people can make whatever art they want and bad art or whatever and i don't hate them the only thing that like makes me viscerally hate someone is when either they make um, shitty art or else when they steal good art and put their own name on it, like Richard Prince does, and then, like, say, this wasn't art in the first place, but by me putting my name on it, it became art, as if they were, like, a fucking Catholic priest turning a cracker into Jesus blood. Yeah, I appreciate some good hatred that's deserving. So thanks for that. (laughs) No, because it's like if someone draws, like, a kindergartner and that's just what they like, I mean, that's an aesthetic. How How can you hate on them? But if someone is literally, like... You, person actually making things, are shit. But I, who uh, steals what you're making and put my own name on it and make lots of money by the act of theft, I'm a god for thieving, but you're still shit because you could never be an artist because you're in the not-artist category, but I'm a fucking, you know, I'm a fucking priest or I'm a fucking artist, so things become art just by me stealing it. Someone like that, I mean, I fucking hate them. I want them burnt. Mm. Your family's artists, like turtles, not all the way down, but pretty far. yeah. Like, how much of that was in your consciousness as a kid? Oh, God, everywhere. I mean, our whole house was packed with my great-grandfather's paintings. I, I was constantly, like, seeing photos of him, hearing crazy stories. And it wasn't just like he was an artist. He was a genuine eccentric. He um, was a member of, like, a revolutionary group in Russia before, before the revolution. He um, 
knew how to do all these weird fucking circus things, like doing trapeze stuff or like eating fire or sticking pins through his cheek. He um, was a vegetarian in the 1930s and basically like this hippie who was into theosophy. This is something that I feel like there was no overlap except in my family. People who were Jewish, American citizens during World War II and were conscientious objectors because they thought that it was wrong to kill Nazis. Yeah, that wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was just my fucking weird ass family because killing is wrong. You're in uh, semi ideal circumstances to grow up creative. Let's go to elementary school. What happens then? I just, I hated being a kid. I was really bad at it. I was um, simultaneously, like, just really bad at communicating with other people and also very, very obnoxious to my teachers. So I had very few friends. I hate being a kid. Hate it. Or did you phrase it to yourself as, in retrospect, I hated that experience? No, no, I hated it at the time. I, like, legitimately hated it. All I could think about was, like, someday I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to be free and I'll have my life. And I fucking despise this. I despise every moment of it. I think, like, when you grow up in a household also that's, like, super political, you sometimes, like, phrase things in, like, these very starkly political terms that just aren't. For instance, there's a letter that I wrote to my mother when I was eight that she saved uh, because it's so embarrassing and you want to save things that shame your child, where I compared her to the Ayatollah Khomeini for not allowing me to wear red nail polish and I misspelled every single word in it. And it was like very angry and self-righteous. And I, I demanded my rights of free expression and said that she was like the, the mullahs of Iran. Kids' rights are a big issue for kids, I've noticed, and then they forget about it as they get older. But I, I still remember like, if you're giving me this toy, it's mine now. Like, yes. It's mine forever. Yes, yes. Because of possession being nine-tenths of the law. If you take it away, you've technically committed a crime. But what I actually, what that reminded me of is just like all, all of your stuff is, there's a self-consciousness about your work. Not like the drawing is a self-conscious drawing in a sense, but like drawing and writing and writing about drawing and then... A lot of times within your writing, you'll talk about trying to draw something. There's a self-consciousness that seems to me to go all the way back. And I wonder if that's related to having an art family and knowing that you want to be an artist. You're like looking at things in this historical kind of sense of like, what do artists do? It, it's true, though. I have to say, I wrote a lot less about the process of drawing in the initial draft of the book because I didn't think it was interesting because I was like, obviously, everyone knows what it's like to draw, you know, dull and then my editor was like actually you're you're being ludicrous and very few people know what it's like to uh, you know draw in this sort of like all-consuming meaning of my life type way and I actually went back and spent a lot more time dwelling on it because I, for me I was it was one of these like fish can't see the water things until someone else pointed that out but you still did it you were still aware of what you were doing enough that you could write about it yeah and even now you've got Fred there and so you can compare how you draw and face a project compared to how Fred does every day. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, like, I have this fucking virtuoso living with me. He's, like, a totally different kind of artist in a lot of ways. We're, like, we, it's unseemly to talk about Fred. We're, we're not even in high school yet. <laughs> uh, so let's go to high school. So we, we have, like, a 13 years to, to traverse. So one of the things that I did during high school, I had so many charming behaviors, was I, I was like, I don't need math and science classes because I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to go to art school. So I would, instead of doing my tests or assignments in class, I would just draw elaborate drawings over them and then hand those back. <laughs> You're a 
pain in the ass. <laughs> Total fucking pain in the ass. It's like resistance. Would you do that like consistently? Yes. That again, you have super high level of self-consciousness. Like you're like in the middle of a class when you're asked a question that you might even know the answer to. You're like, I- I'm not, I don't need to know this. I'm going to art school. Yes. But then you didn't end up at a really good art school. Oh, I went to the shittiest fucking art school ever. I- Sometimes, like, when I, I have friends that went to good art schools and I look at my art school, the Fashion Institute of Technology, uh, by far a, a terrible institution. And oh, I, th- I went there for two years. What, what did you think of it? It was good for fashion. Yeah, for fashion. I wasn't <laughs> studying fashion. I was studying, well, fine art for one semester, foolish choice, and then it, that illustration. What did you study? I was there for fine art for two years and then I moved over to SUNY Purchase, which I liked much better. The fine art program is really... I couldn't even describe how terrible the final program was. It was not is. good. The thing that sort of summed it up for me was that in the sort of display cases that were supposed to show the best work of uh, the fine art graduating class, this person had written, fuck the pig snout, and they had typed it out, and and it wasn't even like a special font. Like, I think it was in Helvetica. They had written, fuck the pig snout in Helvetica, cut it out, and, like glued, glued it over and over again on a board, and then like put red paint on it. They hung it in the lobby. <laughs> they hung in the lobby proudly as like this. This is how we right. crystallize what we provide our students. I just wanted to be in the city and go to punk shows. That's why I started. <laughs> that's why I did it too. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I want to be in the city. Paid more attention in school. You could have gone to Cooper Union and then, you know. Yeah, no, I, I remember what fucking happened at Cooper Union. I tried to get into their summer program and I showed them the portfolio and they're like, wow, you uh, copy from photographs a lot. And that, that kind of was it. I never got into that summer program either. But I was lucky about high school. I had a high school where they were helping me be an artist. It was a it was a cool public school. It sounds like you just sort of had one that you could skip. Yeah, there was an art program at my school. Obviously, I took you know all the art classes I could, but I don't really feel like I learned much from it. I also think though that at that stage in my life, I was like such a little jerk that I don't think that school could have taught me anything. I remember thinking anything designed for children is morally wrong and stupid and inferior, and I won't do it. Wow. It's a horrible child. At what point did you go, I'm going to be this kind of artist, not that kind of artist. I'm going to draw certain kinds of things. Like, it seemed like you're so self-conscious, it would have been a lot of these things would have been choices. So at what point did you say, okay, oil painting, no, is not going to be the basis, like the middle of my practice conceptual stuff is not you know like where when did you like make a the specific molly crablapple look start to come probably when i was in college i think a lot of that honestly developed out of a few things first of all i didn't really have studio space so i was like trying to do the oil paintings i had to do in school in this one dark room that i shared with two girls where there was no ventilation so like the turpentine they're, they they want to kill me they're not studying art and the whole room is filling with turpentine i don't like have a table so i'm like have the oil painting on the floor and like like my carpet fuzz is getting into the oil painting there's no proper lighting and like at a certain point you're just like I'm doing really crappy work. I don't have the materials to do this. This cannot stand. Like, nothing good will come out of me pursuing this carpet fuzz-filled path to failure. But drawing was something that I could do anywhere. And I think that was kind of one of the things that drew me to it. I guess I really started developing kind of like the super liney, detailed, you know, pen and ink style when I was traveling because it was something that you could do with a pilot pen, which you can get anywhere. I didn't need this, like, wet, messy medium that was hard to transport I could, I could just sort of do it anywhere and I could do it really fast. And then I just, I was just drawn to certain things and not others. Like I had to take a conceptual art class in school, but 
I just, I didn't understand any of it. They would have you try to do abstract things in color. And I know that there are so many good things that you can learn from this now. But at the time I was just like, I want to draw something. I want to draw a girl. I want to draw a girl. Why do I have to draw a fucking abstract thing in color? This is fucking stupid. I want to draw a girl. I disliked it so much. I produced really terrible things. I think most, most of us like to be good at things. So once you realize you're bad at something, yeah. you tend to sort of shy away from it and pursue the thing that you're good at, like drawing pictures of girls and cityscapes in a really detailed crosshatch style that impresses people. And then, you know, you sort of go farther down the road in a self-fulfilling prophecy. So was there any human being by the age of 20, whatever, that you had listened to? I listened to my mom sometimes about stuff. Actually, when I was traveling, I got a lot of advice from people who did portraits on the street for tourists because they uh, could do it really fast and they could do things that looked really sophisticated really fast. So I actually learned lots of cool things just by hanging out with like people on La Rambla in Barcelona and being like, how are you doing that with the ink? Show me how you do that with the ink. Also, I had a teacher that I really loved. Well, I had a few teachers I loved in school, but one of them was this guy named Dave DeVries. And Dave is a comics illustrator. And he had this project I thought that was so ingenious where he would work with little kids and they would do like little kid drawing of, of monsters and then he would render them as like super tight oil paintings you know, as if this was like the blueprint for something realistic. And they're beautifully done and horrifying. They're so cool. And one of the things that Dave did was he made us like sort of make a character that was going to be our character and we had to focus on that character throughout the entire semester. So I was reading a book about Victorian England so I made Victorian prostitute my character. And he would teach us everything through that character. Like if we we're learning anatomy in the class, we would have to draw the skeleton of that character, no matter how like weird or um, unhuman looking that character might be, we'd have to figure out where the bones would go in it. Or he would make us do like a skateboard deck or a hot sauce label or all of these things. And because I was, my character is a Victorian prostitute, it was really fun to think about how is she gonna be on a skateboard deck? How will she be on a hot sauce label? How will this all work? It's a really smart assignment. He was brilliant. He was an amazing teacher. I really think he was just astoundingly clever. Yeah, because there's discipline and fun discreetly mixed into that assignment. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and I really believe that creativity, especially before you really know what you're doing, thrives on having some hard rule. And the rule could be, like, totally arbitrary. The rule could be, like, you could do whatever you want, but uh, you have to, like, only use, um, only use, like, giant brushes or you have to make a hot sauce label or whatever because that just gives you some starting point that you could grapple with. And if you... Um, or sort of adrift in infinite options. Very often you just sort of recourse to your own cliches. Right. yeah. Whereas if you have something that you never would have done before, like I never would have done a fucking hot sauce label before, then you have to think like, how am I going to do the hot sauce label and be true to myself? The limits and the challenge of it are a good thing. The Greek menu of the, of the diner, which is like a million pages, and you don't know what you want. Exactly. Whereas like a lot of conceptual art, and I'm, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, I, I, no, I, don't worry. You're not in conceptual art land with this podcast. I, I did an interview recently for Al Jazeera that I got some hatred from artists for because I said that the financial model of the art world was to um, self-plagiarize your own greatest success and in increasingly polished versions to sell to oligarchs until you died. Sure. And uh, that got me in trouble. One of the reasons that conceptual art is so, so boring is that the only constraint that they have on it is like mentally torturing yourself for because you're not original. But like you have no other constraints on it and it just creates like boring, ugly things and mental torture. There's a whole bunch of art, a whole bunch of people and processes of like you know going to art school that you didn't think about and didn't worry about. But at the same time, it seems like every single issue in the larger world is in this book, and you address it. Everything that you are so self-conscious about, like everything that was happening during the time that you 
were around and you contextualize yourself constantly as a person. I mean, we talked to lots of people on this podcast and they're like, yeah, I was in Atlanta. I didn't really know what was up. And, you know, I was just doing this and that and the other thing. And then one day I was like, oh, two colors together. And then that's my job. But you seem to be like, okay, so it's not, it's the nineties. And so like we're doing punk rock and goth and Kurt Cobain. And then there's the internet. So I'm on the internet and then I'm in New York. So we're doing New York, you know, and then nine 11. It's like, Every event of the outside world seems to be grist for the mill, and without that, it's almost like it's like that hot sauce label. You're like looking for a subject all the time, and so like the outside world is like, oh, that's a good thing to hang paint on or you know drawing on. I was always super interested in that. The most interesting artists were the ones that were super engaged with the outside world. Not that every artist has to be, but personally, that's what would draw me to artists. I, I liked, I always liked the idea that the artist would be like sitting there with the sketch pad chronicling history and meeting all of these people and super engaged in um, the world at large. And I think that's one of the reasons why like the fine art world kind of bores me so much because I feel it feels like very insular sometimes and cut off from the larger world or like that it only addresses it in like these weird sort of hermeneutic ways that I don't understand. But it also seems like the fuel for having a thing to draw at all seems to come from that. Yeah, I draw the world around me. Right, okay. So, we're in school, you're learning to draw, and eventually you get you start to get some work. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was really constantly interested in using my art to hustle money because I didn't want to work a normal job. Do you ever have any normal jobs? When I was... 15, I worked um, at a candy store for two days, boxing candy in the storeroom. Like, like I love Lucy. Well, no, it was like there were like a bunch of large boxes and then you had to open them up and they all had smaller boxes in them and you had to like put them in, an- in other boxes. And I remember I was thinking, I was like, I'm making so little money that it doesn't even count. And this is like not a good use of my time. I was such a little spoiled thing. Oh, and then I also tutored some kids and for a bit. After that, I, I was more like, I could draw people's pets and have them give me money. I could draw their kids and have them give me money. Like, I I um, had this, almost immediately, I had this, like, very sort of entrepreneurial thing with art because I was like, I don't want to fucking rebox things. That sucks. You said that it's almost as if, like, you're tricking them. But that's a real talent to yeah. have. That's a lot of worth for that. It's true. You I know? guess... <laughs> They're not artists. They're the enemy, right, Molly? I don't think they're the enemy. Why do you think this way? I I, I get to think this way whenever I hang out with you. No, it's not that. Do you know what? Do you know what it is? The, the magical thing about art is that, with like most other objects in the world, what gives it value is its material components. Very often, like you have a watch, and then the watch, you know, maybe has value because it has like gold on it and shit. It has expensive things on it. But we take fucking colored mud, and through our skill, we transmogrify that into something that that has value. We like make value out of like literally fucking tree pulp and colored mud and we make like a lot of value out of it so there's always a part of me that's like haha you know that, that this, is, this is magic it's almost ironic because you are you don't fit very cleanly into any of the economic models that we had of an artist before you started existing really on the other hand you're like one of the most self-consciously your art's not self-conscious but you're like one of the most like self-consciously i'm an artist people in the world like your family was artistic like your self-conception was art based you did all the arts things like you smoked all the clothes <laughs> i think artists biopics served as a bad influence for me okay so the candy store and that's it yeah candy store some tutoring and that's about it until like i'm about 18 i guess a lot of artists they make art all day all night and they kind of suck at the hustle 
Or they think, like, if I hustle, it's like I'm, like, prostituting myself. It's because my mom's an illustrator. My mom puts right. food on the table. So the hustle is important. <laughs> I never saw art as anything but a job. That's It, it, it would mm-hmm. have been completely idiotic to me if someone was like, I can't get paid for my art. Because I was like, well, then how the fuck's my mom going to feed me if you're not supposed to get paid for drawing stuff? Sure. It was a trait. Like, it was how my family made their livings. The idea that people, like, anguished over this or this was, like, a, a separate thing. I was just like, this is... Ludicrous. It would be like if you were a carpenter and then someone was like, I don't really like want to build benches for people. I just want to build benches for myself. But then like I have benches for people. And like, how do you deal with that? And you're like, I'm a fucking carpenter, man. I did want to ask about FIT because FIT has lots and lots of hot girls, but you don't seem to remark on that. New York has lots and lots of hot girls. You know how fish can't see water, man? Uh, there's a riff in my book about Toulouse-Lautrec because I... I love that riff in your book, by the way, about how, like, girls <laughs> just want to hang out with this, like, angry, syphilitic little person and, like, guys want to fuck. I love that riff. In his life was, like, the most un- sexually unsuccessful person you could imagine. Yeah, I know. He was the guy... He got friend-zoned at a brothel. <laughs> yeah. I have a little riff about Toulouse-Lautrec, and I've heard you do your riff about Toulouse-Lautrec, and a big part of it is I wanted to hang out at the box and be around strippers or beautiful girls. Yeah. I just feel like FIT is like, it's it's 3,000 girls. Like a yeah. strip club is like maybe 20 at the most. Yeah. You never just seem to notice that like FIT was just like a, the best place to just, just stay there. Just teach at FIT for the rest of your life. I think part of it was that the um, fine arts program at FIT was not gifted with those girls. The girls were largely mm. in the fashion program. Mm-hmm. You're making a lot of enemies right now. No, there were just like a lot more dudes, I'm saying, in, in the fine art program than... The, it was like there were very few dudes at FIT, and they all seemed to focus on that program. I want to talk about the way you draw architecture. Because the way you draw architecture is really different than the way you draw people. Are you conscious of that when you do it? Like, And do you think of it as a different thing? I don't... I'm actually not conscious of it. It's actually because architecture is much harder for me than people... When I'm drawing architecture, there's a part of my brain that's just like, get this right, get this right, get this right. Whereas like when I'm drawing people, I don't have to think that way. And I think probably the difference comes between me trying to get something right versus something just being natural and me like getting it how I want it without that trying. Like some of the the drawings of places, they have so much personality. I love the drawing of the storefront of, of Shakespeare and Company. Thank you. Like, there's so much personality just in that picture, but it's just a bunch of books. Like, if somebody asked me to draw the facade of that place, I don't think I would ever be able to do it because I walk past it, like, constantly, and it's just a store. But you draw, you draw fucking, you, you draw scenes with so much personality, too. That's crazy. I mean, you have, like, such edginess. That's what I, what I always think, like, that, like, jagged, edgy, luscious precision in your work. Like, I would never think that you didn't have, um personality and drawing exteriors and drawing backgrounds, especially after like looking at, you know, your D&D book. That's, that's silly. Okay. Well, everyone knows that I'm fantastic at everything, but I want to talk about, are you conscious of like trying to give it personality or you just try to get it right and it just comes out with this sort of... I try to get it right because I'm like trying. One of the things that I'll do is I'll like look at it and I'll be like, what is the thingness? You know, what is, what is the thing that makes this interesting? Like when I was drawing Gaza, for instance, and there were like all these bombed up buildings and I'm like, okay, so what makes this dramatic? It's this big sweep of dark maybe, or it's like this crazy rebar that looks like snakes coming out of the ground. And I think, okay, that's, that's my thing. That's the thing that I focus on, the thing that gets the thingness. With people, their faces and their bodies are already telling you a lot exactly like you the thing that usually makes someone them is their face i mean obviously there are lots of other things that distinguish someone but it's like pretty easy to be like what makes sally sally her face whereas 
what makes this undifferentiated clump of buildings itself, you have to like really look at it in a different way. I think that's something that just has to come naturally. In the same way I was swing dancing recently and some people were just like, I'm swing dancing. Some people were like, step, step, front step. And they just had to think about it so much. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think is just really hard to teach. So I have a question for you guys, actually, especially you, because, um, John, because you're, you're an art teacher. Do you think that you can teach anyone to be a good artist if you have enough time and they have enough desire? Not like immortal genius artists, but like a good artist who creates like good, competent, you know, good work. If they have the desire for it, then yes. A lot of what I do is I ask the right questions more than anything else. What's your take on that, Zach? It's nearly impossible to teach anyone to be a good artist because there's like three alive at any given time. There's however many episodes of this podcast there are, plus two. But anyway, I think that there's, I think good artist is a tiny category because the problem with creating good artists is, is they have, is so many people have the desire to be artists and their desire is to do something stupid, like make a one by one by one cube and then make a two by two by two cube. (laughs) And it's like, God damn it. You could just be an artist and be good. But no, they, they have a specific desire, and it's not mine, and then that's terrible. Because <laughs> things, things that aren't yours are terrible. People who want what I don't want are the enemy, and I think <laughs> goes for everyone, right? I mean, that's, that's really life. I think I disagree with you on your definition of good artist. And people use this in, in several ways. Like, a lot of people, they're like, good artists are like the extreme, like, amazing innovators. You know, I'm saying good artists are Picasso, because not because I think Picasso is good, but in the sense that Picasso's name, because I, I see your eyes bulging because you hate him so much. No, but I mean, in the sense that Picasso's name has become a stand-in for the great artist. That's what I mean. Yeah. Picasso has a brand concept rather than Picasso's man. So they think like only people who are brand concept Picasso count as good artists. And then there's people like me who are like, no, people who do fucking kick-ass murals in the mission are good artists. People, um, you know, who like did design the walls of like mosques are good artists. Like people who did all of these things that made the world more visually beautiful are good artists and there's fucking bajillions of them. Here's the thing. I think that unlike being a lawyer or a diver, there's a crucial, gauzy middle period where you have your teacher teaching you and telling you what to do and giving you assignments. Yeah. And then you push them off into the world and then they have to keep going. Yes, yes, yes. During that period before they hook up to some profession which gives them enough time to keep making art. Yeah. Surviving that middle period has so much to do with people's human resources and luck. So much, and yeah. A million other things. If you're a lawyer, you la, 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 and then you get recruited right out of school. So there's none of that middle period. Whereas an artist, there's a certain point at which you're just like, you're floating, and the only thing that will get them through is a combination of a bunch of factors that we can't always put together, including like not having a better thing come along. I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, I was an artist, but then I was in this band called the Rolling Stones, and I decided that was more fun than... Art school, could you teach Brian Jones to be a painter? No, because he's too busy. Yeah. That vagueness in the middle is the hard part. In art school, there's a whole other thing, which is what do you tell people who are going to go make art that you don't like? How do you teach them? What you do is, to make them a good artist in that sense, is you're hooking a person up with their desire. You know, like, I want to do X. All right, you want to be, like, fucking Solowit, then this is how you would do it. Yes. I think that the thing that makes you an artist is that you have that insane desire because most people don't. Usually you want to become an artist because you see all this like amazing art that you think is so cool and you're like, I want to do that. But then like your stuff really sucks and it sucks for a long time. Like it's fucking horrible for a really long time. And most people don't like doing stuff that they're horrible at. And nonetheless, you have to 
stubbornly, monomaniacally bash yourself through this period where you're doing stuff that you're horrible at to ever be an artist. And the period like lasts like decade, over a decade, like 15, you know, 20, 20 years for me, I feel like, of being bad at something and still wanting it. That desire to love something so much that you'll like suck at it and humiliate yourself and still do it every day um, because of sheer love of it and the belief that someday in the future you might not suck is I think what makes you an artist more than inborn talent. But maybe having that sort of desire is a talent. I don't know. Like maybe having that sort of like belief in this impractical, unprofitable future thing and that sort of love of it is its own sort of gift. I don't know. Okay, we were talking about working. You were in the candy store. You have, you've had one straight job. Then you worked, you worked at Shakespeare and Company, which is kind of a straight job. And then other than that, you're trying to make money. You're making art and you're modeling. Yeah, and then doing like assorted other jobs. I, I spoke about this, I think, in the book, but I, it's so like humiliating. This is legitimately the most demeaning thing I've ever done in my life. A conceptual artist hired me to do a piece at PS1, which is you know, the museum, where I had to sneak up behind people who were looking at other art and stand uncomfortably close in their personal space and whisper, this is the life, into their ears. And I felt like so bad about myself because I'm like, I'm violating people's personal space while they're trying to have a moment, you know, with this artwork. And like, they didn't want me here. I'm just like being like a creepy asshole doing this. Like, I, I felt so much more shamed by that than anything I've ever done in my life. And, it, it was so demeaning. Have you ever talked to that artist since then? Uh, no, I don't even remember his name. I just answered a Craigslist posting by his assistant. I remember in the 90s, well, okay, yeah, it must have been the late 90s. There was a lot of artists who were like, they had watched kids, and they were hiring kids to act like kids <laughs> in the gallery, because that was like an important content in the art world was, was changed. The idea of content was moving from meanings and symbols like, I guess the desire of the art collecting class was moving from wanting to be engaged with the sort of intellectual world to wanting to be engaged with what was cool. Yeah. Like, and, of course, those things overlap, but the idea of cool was, like, getting younger at that point. And so there was, like, all these people that were doing art where they were hiring young people to act young. Yes, yes, yes. Suicide girls and modeling in general, like, couldn't have done anything for your self-consciousness problem. You know, a lot of women, we get this, like, notion that how we look and our beauty or whatever has to do with our value. And not in an economic sense, but, like, you're human, like, your worth as a human being. And I feel like the actually really good thing that modeling did was it was, like, how I look, first of all, is, like, an extremely, like, changeable thing. Like, I can look like fucking shit. And then if I'm, like, under a certain type of lighting, wearing certain paint on my face, I look like a fucking goddess. But it's not, you know, it's not a fixed thing. But the second thing it taught me was, like, no, my looks are not, like, they have nothing to do with, like, my humanity. They're just a tradable quantity that I can make money off of and that I can alter in certain ways to make more or less money. And that was actually really liberatory. Sort of matter of fact. Yeah. No, it was it was great as opposed to like a lot of like sort of square women who have never done that, like read Cosmo and they like look at Hollywood and they're just like, if I could like just have skinny thighs or whatever, I'd be like a you know better person. And like it has so much to do with like their interior value. And actually you could be like, okay, if I have skinnier thighs and I work in this industry, I'll make $50 more an hour. But otherwise it has absolutely no value on my life and I shouldn't um, beat myself up over it unless I can actually like do something for me. I think it's a much less uh, self, self-flagellating thing. In your writing, there's a lot of that, like, taking a, a detached, almost, like, sci-fi perspective. Like, that was something that Kurt Vonnegut would always do, is, like, he would describe something super normal, but he would describe it as if an alien was watching it. Yeah. And, like, a lot of the British 60s new wave sci-fi... Not it's because I'm a fucking like. weirdo. That's how my mind works. Like, it's actually not a stylistic choice. I just... I think this is why I've never been able to fit into any particular structure, because... 
a lot of people, like, they look at the world and it, you know, works a certain way and you're just like, oh, that's just how it, that's how it works. But I'm, like, too fucking, like, weird. Like, there's something wrong in my head. And I'm like, no, that's stupid. That's wrong. That's weird. That's bad. And how does this work? And it's all, like, it's all, like, weird floating things and I don't understand anything. Um, I remember one time I was reading this uh, website that was for men with Asperger's and autism who wanted to date neurotypical women. It basically had all these, like, long lists of sort of behavioral cues that you should know so that you could, like, be a more, you know, sensitive and attractive um, dating partners. You know, this lovely website. And I was looking at this and I was like this is amazing. This is like the best thing in the world. It wasn't that I had a problem with dating, but it was how I like viewed so many other things in life where I just viewed them as this like incomprehensible rituals that other people seem to find so much meaning in. But to me, my, might as well have looked like moder like a modernist dance performance that was happening in the middle of the street that you didn't understand. And then so suddenly someone was like, oh, this is, you know, how it works. I think that's why I have that like alien-like perspective because I'm just like not quite right. It definitely gives your writing a voice, but I think it's an element of a lot of good writing. Like, I think there are other good writers who do something like that, like, take another perspective. As a journalist, like, I was there and this happened, you're, you're third on the scene or second on the scene, yeah. except for, you know, Occupy and a few other places. And the, the person who's going to take time to make drawings is not going to be doing breaking news. No, never. But you do still get to places where there's things that are, they're not like gauzy think pieces where you go, well, let's talk about how golf really works. Yeah. You're not at that far removed, but they're pretty close to the news compared to what you might expect from somebody who has to sit and draw whatever they're writing. Like the thing about the Kentucky Derby and the shit that Hunter Thompson covered with Stedman was that it was not news. You know, yeah. like it was really far from, it was an essay, essentially. Yeah. It seems like your perspective of taking things to like 20,000 feet and looking down allows you to see things that, like commercially to survive, because you actually get to describe things that the people who are first responders don't have time in their pieces to point out, but that are experientially like the first things a normal human would even notice when they, for example, got to Guantanamo. Like, no, it's super so true. When I was at Guantanamo, there's a press conference with the head prosecutor. And, like, everyone there is, like, a super, like, serious, like, brilliant journalist. Like, one woman, she covered it for 13 years. Like, amazing. These are, like, amazing people. Especially this one woman. She's going to, like, write the immortal book on it. I'm convinced. And the prosecutor is, like, just saying things and they're asking questions. It's very technical. It's quite over my head. I don't really, I don't have a good legal mind. Then, like, one of the people asks, and, you know, how many people in the docket for chargeable? And he's, like, 20. And it's, like, just, and then I'm, like, I'm, like, chargeable. And so I felt like such an idiot. I'm, I feel like such a rube. And I, like, raise my hand. I'm, like, chargeable. Um, but there's, like, 152 people here. What do you mean 20 people are in the docket for chargeable? Like, can you explain it? Like, feel, you know, feeling like the biggest idiot in the world. And then he explains to me that um, there were only 20 people who had done things that they could even define as crimes. And thus, were even it was even possible to charge them for things. And while that is a piece of information that to any old-hand Guantanamo journalist is, like, completely, like, blasé and, you know... They, they knew. I think to people who don't know about Guantanamo, it was actually kind of shocking, right? That like only 20 people out of 152 did anything that you could even define as a crime and thus charge them with. Right. So it's good you were there to point it out to the to the everyman. I also think there there's details that they're not like non-technical. Yeah. Like the fact that you can't draw the fucking faces yeah. of the Guantanamo guards is something that no one else would have ever noticed. The weird Orwellianisms on the edge of the story that aren't breaking news. Like, they haven't just happened. Yeah. People in the tunnel can't see that, or they don't need to, and their editors don't want them to, because what they want is what's politically useful news. Yeah. And you're just describing, like, these systems that have existed for 40 years, 60 years, are, are weird by themselves is interesting. No, it's true. And, I mean, I guess 
with my work, like I, I, I can't do breaking news because I draw and also because I write real slow. Like it's just not gonna, it's not anything that I'm good at. But what I, I'm trying to do is just like describe reality. You know, maybe, you know, news is something that's an event, right? But like existence is, you know, omnipresent and, happen- and happening everywhere. And like existence is what leads to the news. And if you don't like also describe that, then like nothing ever has any context. There are two interesting transitions, I think, for anybody listening, which is moving from doing the job illustrating to illustrating what you think of as Molly, your stuff. And then moving from just drawing shit to being also a writer or journalist with the writing. So um, pretty quickly, I realized that um, as an illustrator, like there are two potential sort of paths you could have. One of them was you could just like be really, 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 really technically good at everything. People would hire you because you could like draw anything and it would be amazing and you'd just like be so fucking good. And the other thing that you could do is like maybe you weren't as technically good as the first person, but you could develop like a really, really particular style that people liked and people would hire you because they wanted that style. And I just knew I was never going to be that person that could draw everything and like make it fucking glow and sing. Like I'm just, I just didn't, I didn't have that in me. And also, um, I don't like being bad at things and I, I couldn't, I, I was willing to suffer through being bad long enough to get my own style down. But the idea that just then, you know, furthermore, like suffer being, being bad, like to learn how to do like deep perspective or giant oil paintings was just something I, I, I couldn't deal with, especially because I had to make money and you can't usually like do the being bad and making money thing at the same time, at least hmm. not for, not for long. I, like, looked at my work and I was like, what do I enjoy doing? And at that time, like, when I was 20, what I really enjoyed was pen and ink. I loved the exactness of it. I loved all the lines. Like, it just felt good in my hand, you know? And I liked drawing, like, animals and and girls and, like, curly things and, um, like, weird Victorian stuff. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm good at. This is what I love. Um, I just, my hands like to make this shapes. So this is the type of um, work that I should be focusing towards. And even if I'm doing, like, other types of work, and I did lots of, illustration work that was like not in my style too I, mean, I, I did like storyboards I, I drew like D shit I like did bad oil paintings of people's kids but like they all sucked and you can't because I wasn't good at them and you cannot like advance yourself as an artist um, either career wise or you know talent wise if you persist in doing things that you're really really bad at like you can you know sell your first like painting for $20 of someone's kid looking atrocious but that's not like a path for you you had a very practical mind throughout this whole... <laughs> How else were you going to make a living? That's the thing. It's like... So I remember one time I was on this, like, TV show, and the guy was like, well, you made this choice, like, never to sell out and, you know, be true to your art. And I'm, like, looking at him, and I was like, who the fuck was buying what I was offering? Like, what what are these, like, awesome, lucrative jobs for belligerent, lazy um, art school dropouts in New York? I, I Because, I mean, if there was, like, like a $200,000 a year job that I could have walked into, who knows? But it just it simply was not presenting itself to me. What was the literal job where you went on to doing, like, your stuff? It was really kind of slow. I'm trying, God, I'm trying to think. This is a really good question. Because I was, like, I persisted in, like, trying to do bad oil paintings for a, a, a remarkably long time. Okay, and I did it commercially, too, and I really, like, hope that they don't... Some Someday they'll surface but for people to mock me, because they're really, like, atrocious, like, blights of things. Actually, I think my style really solidified with that teacher I was telling you about. The comics teacher was having us do, like, the hot sauce bottles and the skateboard decks and stuff because he was having us do, like, the defined characters. That meant, you know, you had to do one style. But he was having us apply it to all sorts of things, which made it more like a commercial illustration type thing where, you know, you were asked to do, like, storyboards or whatever. And so that was what taught me how to do a defined, a specific style that applied in a general way. Would you consider, like, everything you illustrated after that on any commercial job, screw, box, whatever, to be 
official Molly starting about then? No, I never really had those sharp transitions in my life. Like, I, I persisted in doing shit I was bad at for, like, a really long time. Right, but at a certain point, like, you draw only what you want, and it's fun. Okay, I think that at the point at which I had officially left behind all that I didn't want to do, I want to say around when I started at the box, maybe? Yeah, around then. So around when I was, like, 25, maybe? 24, 25? Then moving into, like, doing the news. Yeah. Like doing stories. That was hanging out with with journalists around Occupy. Um, and when I went to Greece and I did that thing with the ebook with Lori Discordia. So it's uh, shit. I'm I'm interrupting again, but I feel like there's a thing that a lot of journalists do when they talk to people are like, "How'd you get your big break?" And it's like, "Well, I went to India, and then there was an earthquake in India." Yeah. So they were first responder. Yeah. About. Same. It was with Occupy with me because Occupy happened like literally next door to me and I wasn't writing at first I was doing like kind of journalistic drawings of it and it was just it was really the same impulse where I was just like this is in front of me I want to capture it I want to stick it in my sketchbook I want like exactly what you're saying about like using reality as the grist and then also um because my place was near near Zuccotti um I uh, let a lot of journalists um you know use my outlets to charge stuff and drink my booze and have my coffee because the place is nicer than hanging out at the McDonald's, which is the other place that they <laughs> hung out at. And, you, you know, like, once you invite one, then they all come. Cats. Yeah. And they like to drink. Yeah, they like to drink. So there's a lot of time drinking with them. And then um, I became very close friends with um, this really talented journalist, Lori Penny. And we started, like, thinking, like, we wanted to collaborate because um, when I'm close friends with someone very often, like, I don't know, like, either, like, you want to have sex with them or you want to, like, make art with them. Or maybe both. At that time, I was, like, very much, like, I want to make art with you if we're, like, close. Like, this is how we, like, solidify the bond of our friendship. So we, we did a few small things together where she would, like, go to Quebec and she would send me photos and I would draw from them. But I wanted to be in the field. I didn't want to, like, be stuck in my studio. Random House had been really wooing her to do an ebook. book uh, She pitched the idea of us going to Greece and doing uh, this book together, Discordia. And we went to Athens and interviewed all these people. And it was amazing. And it was the first time... Um, that I had worked like so closely with a journalist so I could see how things like interviews were arranged or I could see how like what a fixer was or how like just all the mechanical stuff right Mm -hmm. and I I learned so much from being with her and then also because um, I'm opinionated I also saw things that I would have done differently than her and I was like thinking like wow if I'm an artist and I'm just tagging along with journalists artists in this relationship are always kind of like the followers not the leaders you know our stuff is driven by their text and so that means that if I, if I just stay as an artist, I'll always be, like, maybe following people who I don't agree with their takes on stuff or I don't agree with their methods. And, you know, I'm, I want to see if I can do this myself. And um, then, then I got arrested and I wrote an article about it. And that was, that was my other breaking news thing. And that was my, my big break as a journalist. You were just hungry. Yeah. That hungry is the highest compliment John gives anyone. I did want to ask another question, though. What's your question? This is the last one. Look at that evil look. He's so evil. He's like thinking about the most evil question. I, like seriously, I, like I feel like your your mohawk is divided into horns right now, and there's like a, a forked tail coming from off screen. That is the evilness of your look. I want to talk about like whenever you hear a, a journalist talk, they either want to be a writer, and journalism was a way to do that, or they want to be out in the field interviewing people, talking, blah blah blah. They want to be reporting. They yeah. want to be in it, and then the writing is the hard part that they're you know not in and it it, since it seems like you just kind of picked up journalism but you also read a lot so which were you or neither or both or some third thing they're both really fucking hard for me uh writing is so hard for me every single time i 
start a new thing. I'm like, every other thing in the past was just an exception I'll never be able to write again. How does this even happen? This is like, must be like some fluke miracle that I ever wrote a single word. It, I find it so hard, um, which is funny because like at this point I find doing art easy because I've done it so long. So they exist in almost exact opposition to each other. In the field, I mean, I find that I, I enjoy it a lot because I'm, I'm curious and I get to be nosy and sometimes, you know, I either get to like meet fascinating people or I get to ask like people I don't like uncomfortable questions. Like it's fun, but um, it's also very, very hard for me because, you know, you don't want to waste people's time. You don't want to miss opportunities. Um, it's all hard for me. But which one did you want to be? I mean, or, or neither, like a writer, a uh, person out in the field. I wanted to do everything, but they're all hard for me. Because you, you were talking about doing your book and you were like, uh, the writing is almost done, but uh, then I get the drawings, but the drawings will be fast. And I was yeah. like, that is the exact opposite of the way I work. Like, the drawings will take the rest of everything. I draw really, really fast, which is probably why I am uh, good at doing stuff like documenting Guantanamo because you'll be like on a press tour and they'll be you'll have like five minutes per room and they'll be hauling you around you're not allowed to take photos but I can draw fast enough to sort of get the uh, lines of the room down in the very very brief amounts of time allotted I draw fast even my complicated stuff is probably much faster than other people's almost all of like my pen and ink and watercolor stuff is less than a day I can usually do one or two of those a day are they still a struggle or are they just like that's that's just what you do it's what I do I mean I definitely like think about them and like analyze them. I'm like, how am I going to do this? And I try to do things to make it fun and challenging for myself. I think part of the reason I've sort of gotten um, a little bit more messier with my work is that I know exactly how to do the super tightly controlled stuff. So I wanted to introduce an element of chaos and then and then see if I could like tame and shape that because do, just doing like tightly controlled stuff, it, I, I knew what I was doing. But no, it's like fucking joy for me to work. I love drawing. I... You know, I get into this, like, sort of fugue zone. Do you work them afterwards, or you just do it and then go? Like, at Guantanamo, for instance, do you go back to that drawing and, and fill in stuff, or do you just... Sometimes I go back to the drawing and fill in stuff. Like, if it if I had, like, a very brief amount of time and then I can sit later, um, I'll, go, I'll go back and fill in. It depends on the thing. Like, if it's something like a person, I usually won't because I feel like I'll mess it up. Whereas if it's something like a building, like let's say you have a building and I like got one window right and then I didn't have time to do all the other windows, I know how the other windows look because I did the one and buildings have a certain logic. So now that you're doing stuff that you are not as like personally connected to as Occupy, do you feel like you will find a way to become personally connected to it and then you write a personal connection or do you start to, to write in a different way and draw in a different way? I guess, like, my personal connection to stuff is I, because I'm, like, kind of a rebellious person and sort of sarcastic and, like, a little bit of a hustler by nature, I, my personal connections, I usually find someone like that who's in the story. Like, when I did the Abu Dhabi piece, it focused a lot on that uh, kid who was the construction worker who was, like, really, really smart and was, like, this, you know, Pakistani construction worker that, like, the whole society thinks, like, those guys are just like, you know, machines that not even men, you know, just to build things. But he's like so fucking smart and he's like giving information to the guardian and shit, you know, and pretending to his boss that he's playing Candy Crush while he does it. I mean, when I see someone like that who's like so smart and like sharp and skeptical, but in this really adverse circumstance, I always feel a personal connection to that. And then just so I don't fuck things up, I do so much research when I do articles. Like I, I read so much about about everything and, and not just necessarily about like the topic itself but I'll try to read like the literature of the place I'll try to like read the newspapers I'll try to like get into it as much as I can do you have a method for finding your people or do you just rely on serendipity no no usually what I do is um, I contact everyone I know that has a connection with the thing 
or else you go to NGOs, it's like very typical, or um, lawyers very often. And eventually someone will know someone who will know someone who it's the right thing, who, who, who they're the right person. But it's just because I know so, a lot of people. Just a whole art project within itself, finding the person. Yeah, it's, and it's harder in some places than in others. I mean, I'd say that the hardest to find anyone was um, that construction worker in Abu Dhabi just because of the um, way that that society works and the uh, surveillance and the fact that like everyone is a foreigner that can be deported at any time and the people who are not who are citizens are really rich on government money so they don't necessarily want to help you. Like it's just, there are specific uh, economic factors with that that make it much harder than almost any other place that I've ever been. When you're trying to describe the advantage of you on the scene versus a photographer on the scene, how do you describe that? To Not to an editor who have to convince. You'd be like, it'll look cool. To myself? Yeah. What do you bring to something that's pretty hard news yeah. that the photographer doesn't? Because I mean, we can all just talk about how it's a higher truth, but what do you yeah. believe? Well, okay, there's a few things. It depends on the situation. Um, a lot of the places I cover, uh, photographers can't go, like Guantanamo. It's almost impossible to get a good photo of Guantanamo because of OPSEC. Okay. Basically, you end up pointing your fucking camera at the floor, and anything that's not that, they delete off. They delete off of your camera. So, um, yeah, I draw things that people that photographers can't get is the first thing. I can very often do stuff in ways that like preserve anonymity. But the third thing is that the interaction that people have with photographers is very different um, than they have with an artist, because when you draw someone, they kind of usually they notice you, you know what I mean? And like, they can see what you're doing and they could judge it and it's stupid. And like, there's like a certain sort of um, mutuality to it. Whereas, you know, photographers, when they go in, they like go in, you take your picture, you take, you leave. And it's, it's a very different thing. Even, you know, there's not, nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's a different interaction and you get a different sort of thing from that. Do you think that in a sense, the content of your art is the writing? I think that to some degree, like, you know, one uh, of the big, divisions between like an illustrator or just a drawer and someone who's making like uh, conceptual art and they're working fully within the gallery system is that there's an image it may not show very much in the conceptual artist's work but then it has a body of theory behind it which then is the content that you can sort of plug in if you have that knowledge about that stuff and so for a lot of people that provides the content Your earlier stuff with screw in the box like your book in a sense, provides the content for those images so that they're not just drawings of those things. Do the words need the pictures or are the pictures, in a sense, saying something that if you saw them alone in a museum, they're saying a certain thing about humans? They do. I think that my pictures, they stand alone and they don't need the words. And I think that the proof of that is that I've done various pieces that don't have the words that are just the pictures. Like, um, you know, my stuff from Raqqa or... Even, like, the recent picture did in Iraqi Kurdistan, like, I, I did, like, a little explanatory, like, tiny thing, but it wasn't about that. They um, existed and spread and spoke in their own way without needing the words. What kinds of different things do you think they say? Like, the pictures behind you, like, are obviously kind of thought out, like, almost, they're allegory. Like, they're thought out as, as, as works of art. They have, like, things that the people who make a portrait of said, and they fit into a thing. Like, okay, the content is this person's personality, what they think. But the pictures that are just sort of on the scene, yeah. is there a way to just even say in words what they describe? I always feel so fucking pretentious when I have to do this. I'm going to try to think of something good. It might. It probably will be totally inadequate. Well, you have a license right now. You're, you're being begged to do it against your will. So it, it's not your fault what you say. I think what I try to do in 
my pieces is I try to put focus on like people's individuality and very often their dignity and um, their humanity. That's kind of the, the through line of a lot of the work that I've done, especially work that doesn't have words that accompany it or doesn't have words that accompany it in a significant way. Like, it's interesting because so many of the artists that influence you are caricaturists. And what you're describing is, and you do have done caricatures. Like, yeah. you've done people to whom you want to dehumanize them. But that's almost anti-caricature. I don't agree with you. I don't think that caricatures are necessarily dehumanizing. I think, you know, often they are. But do you know that um, caricatures are actually more recognizable as a person than photos are often? Because they capture something essential about the person, too. I think that a good caricature is all about someone's individuality. That's what it is. So when it's someone's individuality that you don't like, I mean, I, I tend to think, like, oh, Gorbachev's a big pig. That's a dehumanizing. Well, I'm, I'm not defending all caricatures everywhere. I'm talking about what caricatures are, can be. I guess I'm thinking, like, the history of caricature yeah. is often a history of turning a person into a symbol of what we think the person is a symbol of. Yes. So even when it's friendly, it's dehumanizing in that sense. But you tend to go for an exaggeration to create a likeness, not an exaggeration to make them into another thing. But it's interesting that you're using the similar tool. Like, historically speaking, it's interesting that you're, like, turning a person from a symbol into a thing rather than what people usually do, which is turn a person who just looks like whatever they look like, into yeah. a symbol. That's an interesting thing. I never thought of it that way before. I just liked caricaturists historically because I thought they did really <laughs> clever things with pens and, like, had really cool lines and um, were witty. Once you see a good caricature, like, of, of Bill Clinton, then you see him again in real life and you think of the caricature. He does look like that. Yeah. I mean, he is this, this character now of pen and ink when it's successful. There's another kind of art, which is, like, intentionally humanizing art. You see it a lot in murals and in kids' book illustration. And it's not like you in a lot of ways. It's super earnest, but also it's very like, everyone is a person, and I'm going to draw this person to make them more of a person. And that is what I think of as a humanizing power of a, of a drawing. Yeah. But you don't do that at all. But the thing is, that's not really humanizing. That's like sacronizing people. Because, like, humans are, like, fraught and, and, like, fucked up things. You know, someone's humanity does not mean, like, we all hug. It doesn't mean that. It means that the person is, like, jagged and individual and funny and has flaws and high points and, you know, is a, is a, is a complicated and full being. And I, I, I'm not sure that, like, the humanizing art, quote-unquote, does that either. I guess you, what you have to do is a caricature frames a person as interesting. And then within that human is a whole extra hard thing to get to because yeah. people are interesting to the outside of normal life but it seems like you kind of stretch both like you're like they're going to be interesting but they're also a person but i'm a fucking weirdo and everything looks alien to me so i think all sorts of everyday things are very interesting i think on that note we're gonna say molly like thank that. you so much thank you so much zach this was amazing <laughs> It was great. We really appreciate it. Zach, I'll talk to you soon. Anything that you haven't already said on an interview before? Yeah, you got a bunch of stuff because you're like smarter than most interviewers. Good job. Uh
Leave that in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out Molly Crabapple, whose latest work is featured in EJI, Terror Lynching in America, an online collaboration with the Equal Justice Initiative, and it's narrated by Brian Stevenson. The work is also featured with Kim Bookbinder and Jim Bat, an online video collaboration with Jay-Z and Dream Hampton for the New York Times entitled Jay-Z, The War on Drugs is an Epic Fail. Also, I have more of my artwork in my Tumblr at the pen, or just Google John Mahias. And Zach has a new book with Chana Maivo. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Weed Art is sponsored by No One. Yeah. And is produced by Papen and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer <laughs> is Justin. Something funny music and... <laughs>